Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness for God, to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude with, this is the word of the Lord. And we invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 42, starting in verse 18. Hear you deaf and look, you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased, for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are, they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will, attest, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, my name is Pat. I'm one of the elders here. Glad to have you here and um, look forward to opening this word from God with you. It's interesting when you think about Isaiah. Um, he's actually writing to a people not yet born about a disaster they've not yet experienced, offering hope with right now relevance. I mean, how's that for kind of a time warp sort of situation? But as it turns out, um, that's really the story of each of our lives. Disaster now experienced, needing hope for right now relevance. Even though the audience and the atrocities against them lie some hundred years off in the future, the truth that Isaiah writes about in this passage is actually the difference between being crushed by the difficulties we inevitably face and being confident in the face of overwhelming difficulty when it comes. So here's how I see Isaiah unpacking this passage. First, uh, he addresses why we face adversity in the first place. Second, what we really need when we face adversity. Third, how the Lord provides what we really need to face our adversity. And fourth, how to avail ourselves of what the Lord provides 
when facing adversity. So we're going to walk through those things kind of quickly, but uh, one, two, three, four. And the main point is, is this, the presence of God is our only peace and adversity. And by the way, that's good news. There is the possibility of peace and adversity. There just isn't a possibility of not facing adversity. Okay, good news. There is possibility of peace in the face of adversity. It's just not possible to not face adversity. So this is a pretty big promise. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get into this somewhat complicated topic, okay? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven. Nothing comes into our lives, into our world, that is not from your hand, and you do all things for your glory. And in the end of all things, that's all that matters. The truth is our good is wrapped up in your glory. The two don't stand in competition to one another. We cannot experience and enjoy good without you being given glory. So work through us, work with us in this particular passage. Help us to understand what Isaiah is saying to the children of Israel. And I pray that you'd help us to understand what that means for us. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. So, you probably know by now that living as a human being involves dealing with adversity. I mean, setbacks, cruelty, affliction, they're normal parts of life as we know it. Everybody, everybody goes through hard times. Everyone. In fact, the writer of Job puts it more poetically than just that. He says, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. That's it, man. There's no way the sparks can fly any place else, and there is no way that we are going to have life that is not afflicted or experienced with trouble. There is no life as happy and as pretty as the lives we tend to see on Facebook and Instagram. Just mark it down. Life is not like that. It's very, very different. In fact, uh, the times we face are often very hard. I mean, the word trouble that the author Job uses in that passage I just cited is a word that speaks to the grinding, grieving, withering nature of the kind of trouble men and women are born to. It's that kind of terminal illness kind of trouble, that total loss kind of trouble, the death of a child kind of trouble, the kind of trouble that drives a soul to despair. And there's not a single one of us exempt from it. And so that really brings us to Isaiah's first point. Why do we have all this adversity in the first place? There's probably a lot of philosophic answers to that question, but I'm just going to take what I think to be the big three and just try to click through them rel relatively quickly. One is the uh, uh, scientific or the uh, secular answer. Another is the moralist or the religious answer. And then, of course, the third that we have to cover is what I would call the Bible's answer. So, so the secularist answer to this question, why do we face adversity at all, is simply this. The universe is this simple, is a seething cauldron of fire and ice. It's in a slow and grinding downward spiral of decay. And yet somehow, life found a way to spring into existence as a part of that steady ebb and flow, and life has one irresistible urge, to reproduce, to survive as long as possible before the inevitable distinction. In this universe, the fittest survive and the weakest perish, and that is just the way it is. 
So the answer to the question, why do we face adversity, is simply this. That's just the way things are. It's how it works in a universe like this. So put on your big boy pants and deal with it. Or as the Epicureans in ancient times said, a little bit happier, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That's just the way it is. So that's the, uh, the, the secular answer. The, the religious answer to the question, why do we experience adversity? I'll go something like this. It's not entirely different, just only more superstitious. The universe in the religious experience or the moralist experience is kind of like this. It's a finely balanced machine. It's got these rules and these hacks that clever people can leverage for their benefit. I mean, cause and effect or, or karma or luck, they're all just different ways of describing how things work. And if a person does everything right, whatever that means, then the universe owes them. It owes them good things. And good things are bound to come their way. However, if a person does more wrong things than right things, well, then they shouldn't be surprised when the universe slaps their hands. I mean, what comes around goes around. Everything happens for a reason. It is what it is. In this particular view, uh, when it comes down to answering the question, why do we face adversity at all? Well, it's your fault. It really is. I mean, if you knew the rules, if you followed all of the rules, this wouldn't be happening to you. So it's ultimately your fault. Take your lumps. Become a better person, and better things will happen to you. Except, of course, when they don't. But that's the moralist, religious view of why bad things happen in this world. So you've got the secularist answer, you've got the uh, religious or moralist answer, and then you've got what the Bible says. And it's kind of implicit in this passage in Isaiah. I mean, if you go all the way back up to the top of chapter 42 and all the way down to the end of chapter 44, it's thick with the assumption that God made everything. And that's, of course, what the Bible contends. The Bible contends that God created the universe and everything that is in it. And that he is a being far above everything that has been created, and it all exists because of him, for him, and through him. And that includes life, it includes nations, it includes history, and every individual in them. It also goes on to say that this being, this creator, is the one place in the known universe with whom peace and joy are constantly and abundantly present. In Psalm 16, 111, uh, in your presence is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, David writes. That's a beautifully poetic expression of what it's like in the presence of this one who created the universe. Now, that is really excellent news. I don't know if you picked it up from the other two views, but the other two views hold out nothing like that. There's no possibility of peace and joy in a universe that just accidentally churned you up and will ultimately spit you out. There's no prospect of peace and joy in that universe. Same thing is true with the moralist. It's, there's no peace and joy there. It's just a, a, a cruel fairy tale that we could somehow have peace and joy. But you come to the Bible answer, and amazingly, 
it's actually possible that there's a place where peace and joy are constantly, consistently present. And it's funny that creatures like us, we crave that. We hunger for that. We want things to work out. Good news. There's a place where there's peace and joy. The Bible also contends that the broken and often random-seeming way the universe works out for us right now is because, get this, we, who knowing that place where peace and joy constantly is, we, who logically, think about this now, should be running as hard and as fast as we can to that place that offers what we crave the deepest in our hearts, logically speaking, that's what we should be doing. But we don't. None of us. Ever. All the time. We just don't. We know it has to be there, but we just have other things going on. And isn't that what Isaiah indicates is Israel's problem? Here, you deaf, look, you're blind that you may see. And then the lament, who is blind as my servant and deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he doesn't hear. In other words, what should be obvious to them has become obscure. They have become blind. They have become deaf. What was designed and intended to welcome them into the place where peace and joy persist is summarily dismissed. Isaiah goes on. He says, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. I mean, this was the promise of the law. He said, if you do this, you'll live. Peace, joy, everything that goes along with life. If you do this, you'll live. Now, wouldn't it make sense for logical, rational creatures like us to say, I'm going that way. I'm going that way. Of course, the other side of that, and the only possible other side of that, is to disregard and disobey, is to die and disintegrate. But the promise was there. It honored the Lord. He, he made glorious his righteousness. He magnified his law. But what was the state of the children of Israel? But this is the people plundered and looted. They're all of them trapped in holes, hidden in prisons. They become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, hey, put that back. Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come, the very fact that Israel found itself or would find itself in this awful situation that was facing them should have been proof that they had made the wrong choice. But here's what happens with creatures like us. Instead of coming to the realization that we have really, really messed up, we quickly conclude that somehow God has dropped the ball. 
I mean, how can you preachers say with a straight face that God is the only source of peace and joy when he could have stopped this adversity from happening in the first place? And he didn't. What kind of God would treat his creatures, his children, like that? And with that one snarky and rather simplistic question, millions continue to run away from joy. I mean, after all, wouldn't it make more sense for the God who parts oceans and quenches fires to focus on that rather than making us walk through them? I mean, shouldn't God focus on stopping bad things from happening rather than predicting them happening? It's not that bad stuff happens because God is mean-spirited, nor is it because some things even God can't stop. Look what Isaiah continues to say. They happen because he actually decrees that they do. He will not let us run away from what he created us for. He will not Let us run away from what he created us for. Who gave up Jacob to the the looter, Isaiah says, and Israel to the plunder? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways we would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he, the Lord, poured on him, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. And he, Israel, did not understand. It burned him up. And he did not take it to heart. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Same thing, different way of saying it. God made us. God invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol or gasoline. And it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed for, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There's no such thing. But not only is there no such thing as happiness for creatures like us without the presence of God, there's no alternative outcome but his wrath for those who turn their backs on him. Or to use Lewis's metaphor, you can't pour sugar water into your gas tank without dire results. Now, I don't know where you are when you wrestle with the philosophical realities of that first question. I mean, why do we have to deal with adversity at all? You're going to pick an answer. You've already picked an answer. Two of them will leave you blind and deaf like they left Israel blind and deaf. One of them, one of them only, offers hope, and that's where Isaiah turns his attention next. So, If adversity is simply a part of normal life, 
what do we really need when we face it? And the answer starts to unfold in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. Once again, it's, it's worth noting that what the Lord offers to his people through Isaiah as their real need in adversity is actually very different from what we typically think we need when adversity strikes. I mean, let's just use Isaiah's metaphors, okay? When our adversity is like a, a flood rising up to our chins and kind of sweeping us off our feet, we tend to think that what we really need is to get out of the water and regain control of our lives, right? Or when our adversity is like a fire devouring everything we have and everything we ever hope for in life, we tend to think that what we really need most is to have those flames put out and to somehow have restored what's been consumed. We tend to imagine that our best life now is very similar to the one we had just before the adversity came. Well, that's not what the Lord offers here. Not at all what he offers. For most of us, most of the time, that life that we imagine we really need was very much like the life C.S. Lewis defined. It's a pursuit of a happy, peaceful life without bothering about religion. And as Isaiah and Lewis are trying to help us see, that life is just not possible. There is no possibility of such a life, period. The good news is God gives us what we really need in adversity. Look what he says. Here's how he offers hope through Isaiah. Did you notice the sudden and unexpected change in person that happens in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1? I mean, in the section before that, chapter 42, verses 18 through 25, it's all about they and them. The prophet writes like this, observer. He notices what's going on and documents the realities of the situation. I mean, this happened to them. The Lord did that. This other thing happened. It was all very detached, very matter-of-fact, very courtroom-like. But now, Isaiah 43 starts out, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You see how the person changes there? It goes from being he and they to I and you. And it stays that way through the rest of this passage. No longer detached, but engaged. No longer matter of fact, but passionate. Here's the clear implication. If we can hear it in our adversity, our greatest need is not to be taken out of our adversity, but rather to look for the one whose presence is peace and joy forevermore. We think we need to be taken out of the adversity. We need to look for the only one whose presence is peace and joy. We don't merely need God to get us out of this fix so that we can get, back, get our lives back on track Rather, we need to abandon our off-track lives for the one he's leading, into us, leading us into, the one where he is. We don't, nearly need, don't merely need to be rescued. We need a rescuer who will be with us to the end. You see, adversity is nothing 
if God is present. But comfort is nothing if God is absent. Our situation being solved is not what we need. Our source of hope and the only place it can be found is what we need. And so, how does the Lord then provide for us what we really need? If that's what we really need, we need someone to rescue us. How is it that the Lord provides this? Again, in chapter 43, verse 1, the answer is tucked away in that word, redeemed. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, he says, Fear not, O Israel, I have redeemed you. The word redeemed here speaks of this rich and ancient concept that tragically is kind of lost on modern Westerners like us. It's the concept of a kinsman redeemer. You see, in honor cultures where everybody in the Bible times lived and most everybody in the rest of the world that's not Western-influenced, Enlightenment-influenced, everybody lives in these honor cultures. And in an honor culture, family is intended and designed and expected to take care of family. For instance, way, way back in the Old Testament, if somebody's family member was killed by somebody else, then the expectation was that the avenger of blood would exact the required retribution on the murder of their own. The word avenger there is redeemer. It's a kinsman redeemer. The responsibility of the heir, the oldest one in the family, at the death of a family member unjustly, was to take upon himself the responsibility of righting that wrong. On the other side of the equation, if a family member fell into debt, or was sold into slavery, or was carried off captive, it was the responsibility of the older brother to set aside everything, to rally all possible resources, and to go to the aid of his family member and do everything possible to rescue and restore them. That's the word used in Isaiah 43, verse 1, when God says, I have redeemed you. That's what he's talking about. It's not just a little coupon you clip and, you know, a little code you write in the Amazon phrase there where you get a little bit of a discount on what you're buying. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much deeper than that. It is the family connection of somebody coming to the aid of family and saying, you will not face this alone. I will come to your rescue. It's used 99 times in the Old Testament, 29 of them in the Prophets. Of that 29 times, 25 of them appear in Isaiah. 33 times in the Old Testament, the Lord is called the Redeemer. 19 of those times are in the book of Isaiah. Like no other prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah foresees a servant of the Lord, a person born of David's line who becomes a kinsman redeemer for his people. A person who comes to be with us in our adversity and to shepherd us through it safely home. And notice how the kinsman redeemer redeems his people in their distress. He offers something of great value in exchange for the ones he has chosen and called his own. Isaiah reflects back on the exodus to describe this exchange. He says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I, God says, give Egypt, this world power, massive nation at the time, I give Egypt 
in exchange for you. Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Later on, Isaiah will introduce this servant of the Lord, dearly loved by God, and this servant of the Lord will give himself in exchange for the people. Not just nations, but himself. And why? Why does he do it? <laughs> Keep reading. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life. This God who choreographs the adversity that comes into our life will not let us run away without opposing him. He will not let us go. Why? Because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Because of the great love he has for those who shall be his people. The God whose very presence is peace and joy. And who at the same time has been badly mistreated, willfully disregarded by a, a people trapped in their own foolish adversity. This very God promises to send a kinsman redeemer to be with them in their plight bear their crimes, and to bring them safely home. And by now, by now, you should have every clue you need to know who we're talking about. The person who is the promised kinsman redeemer is none other than Jesus. And though we can't say it for sure, it's safe to assume that John at least had passages like this in mind when he penned that famous sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever places their trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What we really need in our adversity is God's presence. And God has provided Jesus, the person for us in our adversity. So that brings us to our last question. How do we avail ourselves? of what God has provided for us, what we really need when adversity strikes? Well, allow me to answer the question in two ways, one by pointing to what the text says and then the other by telling a story about some people I know. The answer in the text, of course, is found in those fear nots in this passage. Verse 1, fear not, I have redeemed you. A little bit later on, verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. Here's what the Lord is saying. The thing that has come upon you is from me. Whatever you have done to bring this upon yourself, it's over. I've taken up the debt. I've taken it upon myself. I've paid it in full. I am what you need, and I will be with you. The waters, the rivers, they are going to threaten, but I promise you, they will not overwhelm you. The fire and the flames, they will sting, but they will not consume you. The life you know and the dreams as you've dreamed them, they may be scattered to the four corners of the earth, but your story will not end here. The Lord declares, I will bring you home. What you thought was going to be your life, it's now over. You're mine. The new thing 
is going to be hard, but you're not going to be alone. I will be with you, he says. By the way, the proof of that will be peace and joy in floods and fires. Peace and joy in floods and fires. And as we've seen, where the Lord is, well, only there is peace. So let me conclude with just a couple of stories to help you kind of get your head around um, how this works itself out. A couple of people I knew a lifetime ago, um, serious adversity, faced it, dealt with it. It's just one of many stories I could tell. In fact, it was a September that uh, the flood and fire started for them. They were busy preparing for aging parents, trying to get adult children launched into life, neck deep in their careers, trying to fund it all, trying to manage it all. And a routine medical procedure turned up cancer. Not just any cancer, but stage four cancer. Statistically speaking, on the day of that diagnosis, a clock started tipping, ticking that typically ran out in cases like hers in about two and a half to three years. So like travelers landing in some foreign airport completely unprepared, they plunged into the fire and the flood called cancer. Seven surgeries, several of them to try to get rid of the cancer that kept cropping up, a couple of them to try to repair the damage caused by the surgeries that couldn't clear things up, ten rounds of industrial strength chemo that honestly left her little more than a skeleton with skin on. He was there with her through the whole thing, though, was watching it happened as the cure nearly killed her. It was awful. It, it stung. But he was there. And he took care of her every step of the journey. And they talked a lot, which was beautiful to see. They talked about the Lord's purposes. They talked about his goodness and how this, this thing, stage four cancer, this was plan A, God's best possible path for their lives. And as best they could, they stepped into it, and they trusted. They prayed hard, they fought the cancer hard, they trusted hard. And at the time all this was playing, they lived up north, and by the time it was all done, and they had done everything they could for her, the cold was just honestly crippling. In fact, probably deadly for her, so they sold everything. Everything except a few essentials. And they moved south, hoping, looking for sun, for warmth, and hope. They landed in Florida, and uh, sunshine and warmth actually did help. First year they lived down here was probably the best year she had in a long, long time. In fact, it was so good that anyone who knew her down here during that first year had no idea, no idea at all how close to death she had been just a couple of months before. But about three months after that first year, she woke up one night complaining about some serious pain in her lungs, that's where the cancer lived, and her vision was getting blurry and, and she was feeling lightheaded, so he called the ambulance, had done this many times before, followed the ambulance to the hospital, and 36 hours later, she was dead. In the shock of it all, he realized that the Lord had done exactly what he had promised, though. What they had prayed for, though not exactly in the way they had seen it playing out in their heads. See, the waters, the waters didn't overwhelm her. She passed from death to life, 
into the hands of her kinsman redeemer who had all that time been preparing her for himself. Fires had stung, but they hadn't consumed. And there she was, gathered home from the surgical ICU right there in Lakeland. Her name was Karen, and she was my wife for nearly 40 years. And I swear to you, on the very word of God that I'm speaking to you, the same peace, the same joy that she knew right up to the end, I have known ever since. Oh, the floods did not overwhelm me, for sure. The fire's only stung, but it hasn't consumed. That, that diagnosis came six years ago this past week. Karen died two and a half years ago now. And everything about the dreams I had for the life I wanted to live, everything that I had hoped for, worked for, vanished with her. Like the exiles Isaiah is writing to, I was never going back to some version of the life I had had. A few months after that, my friend Justin and I took a road trip to New England. It made sense, so we did. Turns out we were both kind of chasing ghosts. On the front end, we, we took the trip to get to New York City so that we could uh, go to the World Trade Center site. See, Justin was one of the first responders who spent those futile days and weeks after the collapse of the towers looking for survivors when there simply weren't any. And if you let him tell his story, you'll discover that that event literally changed the course of his life, ultimately resulting in a crippling accident ultimately leading to the two of us meeting and even taking the trip. We went to New York City looking for peace at ground zero, but you'll have to check in with Justin about that story. For my part, I was merely just the chauffeur uh, in that story, trying to make it possible. But then we got to Acadia National Park, and I, I stood at the top of Cadillac Mountain looking out over the horizon of the Atlantic, cruise ships parked in Bar Harbor. Karen loved New England coast. We'd been, in fact, to that very spot where Justin and I parked two years before Justin and I arrived there. And it struck me at that moment, one of those, you know, senses of vision that you get every once in a while that, like those cruise ships, Karen's ship had set sail, leaving me on the shore, watching it disappear over the far horizon. And it struck me somehow at that moment that a choice was being set before me. I could build a shrine, pitch a tent, and stay there on the shore watching where that ship had gone over the horizon, waiting for mine to come. Or I could turn away from the horizon and discover what the rest of plan A looked, for the year, looked like for the years that I had left. So Justin and I came home to Lakeland, and here I am, telling you the story. Little did I know that while all of that was playing out for me, an equally difficult and equally amazing story was playing out in Debbie's life. Same kind of flood, different kind of fire. Through a set of divinely orchestrated events, our paths crossed, and we married just a, over a year ago now. Uh, it's actually quite a beautiful story, and uh, it's going to take too much, line, too much time to tell that now. But for most of that year we've been married now, we've worked together as house managers at a group home for adults with developmental disabilities. 
down in Fort Myers. I can tell you the truth. Neither of us ever saw us doing what we're doing. In fact, neither of us ever saw us being us. <laughs> That's just the, the bottom line of it all. And we live every day grateful to God for one another, for the work he's given us to do together. Fires have stung, for sure. The floods still terrify from time to time, but we're not afraid. We're walking home together, looking daily for Jesus, who alone is the only place where peace and joy are. And for his part, this is what he offers us. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, they, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring you home. The good news is simply this. Peace and joy can be found. You will face adversity. As surely as Isaiah wrote this section to a group of people not yet born about adversity they were not yet going to face, you and I will face this. This kind of fire, this kind of flood, as surely as sparks fly upward. But, 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 the presence of God and the person of Jesus is our only source of peace and hope. Do the logical thing. Run, run, run to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are so good. You are so mighty. You bring into our lives exactly what we need so as not to foolishly keep running from you. I pray that you would grant us grace to step into it. I pray that you would give us wisdom to run to Jesus, that you would indeed validate the truth of your word, not by taking us out of adversity, but by being with us in it so that we might know peace and joy, the very things for which we were created. So honor yourself, glorify yourself in answering this request on our behalf. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.